here, and it is my privilege uh, to unfold uh, Mark chapter 6 before you this morning. I have a question for you as we start out. Have you ever known someone famous in real life? I went to high school with a guy named Austin Kearns. Some of you might know that name. He was a phenomenal baseball player. In fact, he was recruited by lots of scouts when we were still in high school. Shortly after we graduated, he was even drafted into the major leagues. He played right here in Cincinnati for a while for the Cincinnati Reds. That's pretty impressive, right? But it wasn't until I was watching an episode of Psych, that hilarious TV show where James Roday pretended to be a psychic detective, and I heard him make a random reference to Austin Kearns. It was then that I realized, wow, that kid that I knew is actually famous. They're referencing him on a TV show, a national TV show. I had just known him as the kind of quiet guy who ate lunch a couple tables over from me. He was the most remarkably ordinary person. It was hard to imagine him as a cultural icon being referenced on a popular TV show. Well, I imagine that had to have been just a little bit of what Jesus's friends and neighbors were feeling as he began his public ministry. That's the scene that Mark sets up for us here in chapter 6. So let's read it together, beginning at verse 1. Jesus left there, and he went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles that he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Last week, we heard the story of a demon-possessed man. Jesus met him in the tombs. Despite how, how sin had ravaged this man's life, he still recognized Jesus' power when he experienced the inside-out restoration of the kingdom of God. But now we travel with Jesus to his very own hometown, and he gets a very different reception. The people of Jesus' hometown couldn't get out of their own way. Their familiarity with Jesus prevented them from seeing him as he truly is. Not just a carpenter, but a king. Right now, if you're honest, you might be a little bit tempted to judge Jesus' neighbors in this story. After all, couldn't they see how exceptional he was? How different, how otherworldly. But you might have done the very same thing. If you have grown up in church or been a Christian for a while... 
I bet you are tempted to feel a familiarity with Jesus, too. You've heard all the stories. You've done all the devotionals. You've seen all the stained glass pictures of Jesus. You know who he is, right? This story incisively reveals our own hearts, showing our tendency to do the very same thing as Jesus' neighbors. We can similarly think that we know all about him, and we put Jesus in a nice, neat little box. But when was the last time that you were surprised by Jesus? When was the last time that his words offended you? To truly know Jesus is to know that he is full of surprises. We can never fully plumb the depths of the mysteries of who Jesus is. In fact, we might miss out on the blessing of knowing Jesus deeply simply because we've left no room for the mystery of faith in our lives. Note verses 5 and 6. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Hebrews 11.1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, last Sunday, when Pastor Drew unpacked the story of the demon-possessed man who was living in the tombs, we saw that Jesus did not just heal the man physically. He also healed him emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. He restored this man to wholeness. He restored his dignity and his reputation. As Jesus pushes back the darkness of sin in our lives, the light of righteousness shines. It restores and heals the broken places. Faith means believing that God can and will put all things right, either in this life or the next, even in the most unlikely places. But Jesus' neighbors could not see past their own noses. They couldn't see what Jesus could do, who he could be, what he could know. It didn't fit into their boxes or categories, their attempts to understand Jesus. From commentator Timothy Gombus, there is something exotic about the unknown, about someone we have not seen before, so that we are unaware of his faults and failings. But they know Jesus and his family. Nazareth was not a big town. It was the sort of place where everyone knows everyone else and word gets around. They were, they were familiar with Jesus' family as they were able to name his brothers and sisters. These two factors, that he is a laborer and that they know him and his family become the cause of stumbling in verse 3. The Greek term used is scandalizo, from whose root we get the word scandalized. It points to such a serious objection that one is unable to accept the truth of what is being said. The people of Nazareth were literally scandalized by Jesus. By what? 
by a guy they went to high school with, suddenly having the authority, wisdom, and power that could only come from God himself. They had literally never seen anything like it. They didn't have a category for it. It didn't fit any of their assumptions about who Jesus was. And they were offended. Sometimes God's ways are surprising or even scandalizing to us. The truth can offend, hurt, or even sting. God's upside-down kingdom is surely surprising. And he often does things in a way that is completely foreign and confusing to us. This should not shock us. God says of himself in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Are the heavens, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. When we are surprised or even disappointed by God, it can serve as a wonderful wake-up call for our sluggish spirits, an opportunity to trust him more deeply. To come to the end of ourselves is actually the beginning of faith. It says to God, I can't, but you can. So I choose to trust you. Where in your life is God calling you to trust him this morning? Where have you been scandalized by his ways? Where is his word offending, surprising, or confusing to you? Hand those things over to him. He can always be trusted with our faith because he is bound by his own promise to do what is best for us. And for specific promises, you can go read Romans 8.28, Genesis 50.20, and Psalm 119.68. Mark wraps up this story by telling us that Jesus could not do any miracles there. The Greek word that we translate as could comes from the Greek word dynamai, which you might recognize as the root of the English word dynamite. The town of Nazareth quite literally had the dynamite of God in it. From the Story of God Bible Commentary. In some way, the power and presence of the kingdom is affected by human faith. We may think of the kingdom of God as spaces where God's power is present. It is present in great power where humans welcome it. Lean fully into it and seek to actualize it through communal practices of self-giving love driven by an orientation toward God and his glory. Human resistance, however, snuffs out kingdom power and marginalizes the life-giving presence of God. How sad is it that Jesus could have blown up the devastation that sin had caused in the town of Nazareth. He could have restored his neighbors and friends from the inside out, but their lack of faith prevented them from partnering with him, his work and his worship in their midst. 
Making Jesus too small does not limit his power. It just limits his work in our lives. Now, this first part of the story dealt with the people of Nazareth and their lack of faith. Let's move on to the next part of the story. We'll pick up in the second half of the story with verse 6. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Did you catch that? He says, don't you dare pack a suitcase. Now, if, if you're like me, I'm a planner. I'm, an, I'm a one on the Enneagram. This would freak me out a little bit. I'm not, I'm not just being honest here. Our first story was characterized by unbelief. But I think you'll be relieved to see that this story is characterized by belief. The disciples had now seen Jesus at work. They'd seen him move in many surprising ways. They'd seen him heal and restore men and women, physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. And now Jesus was about to send them out. They were to go out with power and authority to do the very same things. They were to depend on God every step of the way, from where they would sleep, no hotel reservations, to what they would eat, no Googling or Yelp reviews, to what they would wear, no shopping ahead of time, to how they would heal and even who would listen to them. We see Jesus display his doctorate and education here. He takes the disciples through every step of learning a new skill before he sends them out. Here are the steps. Number one, you watch me do it. Number two, you do it with me. Number three, I do it with you. Number four, I watch you do it. So here the disciples are on step number four, the final step of learning how to walk in the way of Jesus. They have to go and do what Jesus would do while Jesus watches. Every step of the way, they have to trust that the God who has shown up with Jesus will also show up with them. But the sweetest part of this story is that he doesn't send them out alone. Not only does the Holy Spirit go with them in the work of ministry, he also sends them out two by two. They're not sent out alone and neither are you. We're told in verse 7 that Jesus gave them authority over evil spirits. They clearly had every bit of individual power and authority that they needed. So if it wasn't a pragmatic decision... Why did Jesus send them out two by two? Jesus clearly knew how demanding ministry can be. In the next chapter, before Jesus feeds the 5,000, 
we see that he was so busy with the ministry and that he and his disciples had not even gotten the chance to eat lunch. They were so busy, they didn't even have the chance to stop and eat. I don't know about you, but I get exponentially less holy the more hangry I am. Jesus knew the work of God that that he was calling them to. He knew that it was draining physically, emotionally, spiritually. He knew that they would need the encouragement, support, and challenge of having a trusted friend with them. God does not expect us to go it alone when we're serving him. But here's the thing. They did not get to choose who their ministry partner would be. Have you ever thought about this? Someone had to have Judas as their ministry partner. Yikes. (laughs) Surely that was an intentional part, though, of the discipleship process for these followers of Jesus. They had to learn how to work together, to communicate, to be united in kingdom goals. They said yes to the assignment. They put their faith in God. And we're told at the end, they bore fruit. Lots of it. But that missionary assignment was not without its hardships and perils. Jesus warns them in verse 11. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave. Jesus clearly knows that this will happen. He does not expect the disciples to be greeted with a ticker tape parade for every new town that they enter into. He knew that there would be people and even whole towns that would not respond to his message with belief. In fact, they would respond in unbelief and refusal to accept the message and person of Christ. He prepares his disciples with this. He prepares them with the epic words of Taylor Swift. Shake it off. He tells them, don't let that sit on you. Don't let their unbelief, their hatred, their misunderstanding, their false assumptions, their jealousy, their anger, their sin. Don't let it sit on you. Shake it off. Don't let it slow you down. Don't let it discourage you. And this is how they were able to do that. By leaving to God what is God's and simply doing what they've been called to do. Preaching, driving out demons, anointing the sick and healing. You'll notice that Jesus did not put the results on the disciples. You see that? There were no numbers. He didn't put the results on the disciples. He just asked them to be faithful to go. To do what he asked of them. The fruit was his to grow. Or not. I learned this lesson many years ago when I was serving God in China. The places where I saw the most spiritual fruit were often seemingly dropped into my lap. I couldn't possibly have manufactured them by myself. It was God who dropped them. It freed me up immensely as I learned to trust and seek and wait on him to do his work in his timing. 
I love the beautiful way that Samuel Rutherford puts this kind of faith. Duties are ours. Events are God's. When our faith goes to meddle with events or to hold account upon God's providence and begins to say, how wilt that do this or that? Then we lose ground. We have nothing to do there. It is the, it is our part to let the Almighty exercise his own office and steer his own helm. There is nothing left for us but to see how we may be approved of him and how we roll the weight of our weak souls upon him who is God omnipotent. I love that picture. Rolling the weight of our weak souls upon an almighty God. Trusting him completely. Resting in him like a child. Author Tim Hansel tells a story about learning this kind of lesson. One day, while my son Zach and I were out in the country, climbing around some cliffs, I heard a voice above me yell, Hey, Dad, catch me! I turned around to see Zach joyfully jumping off a rock straight at me. He jumped and then he yelled, Hey, Dad! I became an instant circus act, catching him. We both fell to the ground. For the moment, after I had caught him, I could barely talk. When I found my voice again, I gasped in exasperation. Zach, can you give me one good reason why you did that? He responded with remarkable calmness. Sure, because you're my dad. His whole assurance was based on the fact that his father was trustworthy. He could live life to the hilt because I could be trusted. Isn't this even more true for a Christian? This past week, I got some really surprising and wonderful news. I was invited to do something that I had been dreaming about and praying about for a long time. Now, my first inclination was to hit reply to the email, followed by yes in all caps and with about 16 exclamation points following. But in my Bible study, we had been talking about wholehearted devotion to God, doing things his way in his timing with his leading. After all, oh, so I decided no shortcuts, no assumptions. I hit pause while I took the opportunity to talk to God in prayer. After all, shouldn't I be able to trust him? If he says no to this opportunity, won't it be because it's the very best for me? Because he has something better instead. It was a great lesson in learning to wait on God, learning to trust him for his very best. Last night, I was laying in bed praying. I didn't feel like this sermon was finished. So I was asking God what else he wanted to say to you. My prayer went something like this. Lord, it has been a hard and heavy week. Hard things happen in our church family and across the world. What word of comfort and encouragement do you have for your people? And some surprising verses ran through my mind. They're the words of Jesus. 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 29. Now at first, I was confused. My response went something like this. God, did you miss the part where I said this was a really hard and heavy week? Why in the world are you responding by telling people to take a yoke upon them? So if you can pull up the image for me here. If you don't know what a yoke is, this is what it looks like. It's a big, heavy wooden bar that stretches across the back of two oxen. Now, to to Jesus' people in Jesus' day, this was a very familiar image because this is how they farmed. The yoke would stretch across the, the backs of two oxen, and it would pull behind them a plow. And that's how they would plow the fields. That's how they would harvest the fields. As I thought about Jesus' words, this is the picture that came into my mind. And I remembered, when we take Jesus' yoke upon us, he also commits to take our yoke upon him. Maybe, just maybe, that's what faith looks like. Walking with Jesus like we're yoked to him. We can't run ahead, right? We can't lag behind. We're bound together. We just take the very next step together with him. And he shoulders the lion's share of the burden. He walks with us. And in it, he gives us rest. Is that what you need? It's what I need. The psalmist prayed this. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. Let that be true in your life and in mind. Amen. Let's pray. God, our hearts are heavy. We bring that to you. We bring little baby Gio to you who had his very first heart surgery this week. I can't imagine how his parents are feeling, how they're coping. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give them faith to lean upon you, to let their weary souls rest upon you. And I pray that you would give them rest. I pray that you would heal little Gio's body that these devices would do their work and that he would be restored, that his heart would beat as it should. God, we pray for the nation of Thailand that is reeling from just an unimaginable, unspeakable crime, Uh, just baby children gunned down during nap time. I just... What can we say? What can we say to that, Lord? But God, you see it. It's not outside of your control. It's not outside of your love. And so, God, we pray, would you pour out your love and grace on that nation as they grieve, as they hurt, as they wrestle 
with why. I pray would you pour out your grace on them. Would you help them to see, Jesus, you are with them. You are literally the power of God in their midst. May they see you work in a dynamic way. May you do things that are unimaginable, even through this horrific crime, to bring the nation of Thailand to yourself. And God, be with us. We all have our own private hurts, our own private things that are weighing on our minds. Lord, they're not private to you. Everything is unbared, unveiled before you. There's nothing we can hide. And so we do, we come to you in faith with open hands and open hearts, and we just say, Jesus, take it. Jesus, take it. Help us to take up your yoke. Help us to walk faithfully side by side with you. You promise that it's the best way. You promise that it'll give us rest for our souls. Help us to trust you. Help us, Lord Jesus, this week. We pray in your name. Amen.